0: as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. What can I say about Amanda Ripley? You know, we had this conversation a long time ago and some of you who came to the Facebook Live watch this conversation and we're bringing it to you on the podcast now. And I hope what it does is it gives her book another boost because frankly, I believe that every human on the freaking planet needs to buy this book if you have any interest in democracy surviving. I actually think her book is story and 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 heart speech for how we get out of these conflict conversations, but it's not like a bullet pointed how-to book. It really is tells these gripping stories that will change you from the inside out. She's a journalist and she's an author. The book title is called High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Um, And she writes for really smart newspapers and magazines. And I got to have a conversation with her, gosh, I want to say right after Donald Trump was elected president. And I was really um, feeling a lot and she was feeling a lot. And um, we were introduced and I didn't even have a podcast at the time, but I just felt like we wanted to be in connection. I'm just, I find her to be somebody who is so present and centered. I gain so much just by being in connection with her because there's such a deep conviction to how we hold space for other people and how we really devote ourselves to not getting caught in what she calls conflict entrepreneurship. Conflict sells. And it doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative-leaning, conflict sells stuff. And, oh, this is such a good conversation. And I just, I feel like I want to bow down to her for the work that she does and the earnestness she does it. So, oh my gosh, I'm just going on and on. Amanda Ripley, listen in. I'm really excited to introduce you to Amanda Ripley. And I'll tell you why, because Amanda is a really generous listener. I mean, I think it was two and a half years ago that you and I spoke and I felt like you were really genuinely interested in what Sidewalk Talk was doing. And you're a journalist. You're also a really good writer. I've been reading your book, Thanks. you know, and you're actually a great storyteller. Some people write nonfiction books and they're a little sleepy. But this book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped is really good. So I want to give everyone a kind of a overview on who Amanda Ripley is, why you became a writer to start with. I want to, I want to learn that, that narrative. So say a little bit about you and becoming a writer first. Yeah, you know,
1: well, I uh, was born in Arizona. I grew up in New Jersey. And like a lot of people, it was some teacher who told me I was good at something that made me want to do more of it. You know, um, so it was an English teacher named Ms. Vananzi at Lawrence Public High School who said, who, who, and she was tough, you know, she, the rumor, I don't know if it's true, was that she used to be a nun, but something had happened. No one knew what, and she was just tough. She was, she pushed everyone. She was kind of, you know, a hard ass, if I can say that. Can I say that? Just what she was. Um, and so, so when she said I was good at something, it really meant something, you know, that I, that I had potential as a writer. So, um, and, and, you know, it's, it sort of sounds lazy, but I was like, well, I might as well do the thing that is easier for me than the <laughs> things that are hard. But I started writing more and then in college wrote for the newspaper. And, um, you know, I, I always, I still find writing to be really challenging. Um, it's not, it's not gotten easier for me. I'm not like, you know, Stephen King writing a book every three weeks and, um, I've written three books, and each one of them has been a lift, and it's taken a while. So, um, but it's it's an it's an incredible, just a ridiculous, ridiculous privilege to go around interviewing people about their lives and trying to tell those stories with, you know, any amount of fidelity uh, (laughs) to what actually happened, and uh, and so it's been. That's piece of it is probably the most sort of exciting piece is being able to drop into people's lives and try to learn from them, which you get, right?
0: I want to toot your horn, though. I I know that capitalism and who you write for shouldn't mean anything, but it does. You've written for one of my, I really love The Atlantic. You've written for The Atlantic, which I I love The Atlantic because I feel like the scholarship and the the thought-provoking articles, but who are some of the different outlets that you write for and have written for?
1: Well, I got my start at a place called Washington City Paper in D.C., which was a free alternative weekly uh, in the 90s. And nobody read it, but we got to write these like, you know, 8000 word stories. And we got really good editing from uh, people like David Carr and Eric Wemple who were great journalists. And so it was a it was a really gift to be able to have, you know, older, wiser, talented editors treat you like anything was possible, you know. Even though again, no one was reading these stories, let me just be clear. was <laughs> <It's> like really. <laughs> uh, but we acted like we were like really gonna change the world. And I don't know how I don't know how you create that alchemy in an organization, but it's it's very it's very cool. And I was lucky to work there with some amazing colleagues like Tanahahasi Coates and Michael Schaefer and um lots of people who went on to do great things. And so uh, after that, I spent ten years at Time Magazine. Um, speaking of capitalism. And I worked in New York and DC and Paris for them. And uh, then, you know, I've pretty much been writing books and feature pieces for places like the Atlantic since then.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for, you have a lot of humility about, about. Oh, good. Kind of being part. Okay.
1: (laughs) I pride myself on my humility.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's why your writing is good. Uh, so you and I spoke right after the U.S. presidential election, and I think to be honest, I felt like I had a one. little like to the be last clear. one. Yeah, 2016, 2016 election. Yeah, <laughs> and and I've I've got to be honest with you, you actually hung out with me for a good hour, which never happens with somebody uh, of your stature who have never met before. And I felt like I kind of got a free therapy session in my dialogue. With oh, that's funny because I felt like I did. Oh, good. Oh, good even better. Um, I really enjoyed that
1: conversation.
0: Yeah. We kind of went kind of all different places, but it was, um, salve for me. I am. I'm so glad that you wrote this book and I'm really excited by it. I told you before we went live, I said, "Oh, we're going to have a sidewalk talk book club with your book. Um, because you have really outlined conflict, but I got to ask you, I'm going to ask you a hard question now. It's going to be a little provocative. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. I get a little pissed off at the people that are writers and journalists, because sometimes I think they stoke the fires of high conflict. And I'm wondering if there's any part of you Uh that wrote this book as a form of atonement for that. Hmm.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, I don't feel like it's done, though. You know, I feel like I'm always at risk of being a conflict entrepreneur. And it's just only recently that I've understood that that's a thing with a name and something to watch out for. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think it's less atonement than evolution. Like it's sort of an awareness of how people and pundits and obviously, you know, platforms, companies can exploit conflict for their own ends. And sometimes it's for profit, but I actually think much more insidious is it's for attention. It's for camaraderie, for a sense of purpose, right? To to feel like you matter, you know? I mean, that's why everyone wants to go viral on TikTok, right? They want to matter. So there's some deep fundamental human needs behind that, which, you know, we all have, and I can't fault us for having. The problem is that we've sort of designed a lot of institutions, including uh, many news media outlets, to really incentivize Throwing jet fuel on the conflict, right? Like that kind of tweaking of the conflict, delighting in every twist and turn, um, that kind of thing. There's no disincentive, right? Like it feels like out of balance. And I do think we could design, and people are designing different kinds of social media platforms and sharing platforms and other things, right? You can design for our better conflict instincts. Just like you can for our worst, but we've sort of gotten really out of whack, I think. Do you think?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm still like on conflict on, entrepreneur entering that word into the it's going in and I'm keeping that one. Yeah, I um the next thought that I have in listening to you is I'm like, wow, yeah, I'm I'm listening from a psychological lens, that deep wound to matter and how it actually is a participant and a player in. This high conflict that you describe in your book, that there's a way, you know, I think Brene Brown uses a, a phrase, maybe it's not hers, and she's using someone else's called common enemy intimacy. Where Ooh, we I find,
1: like that, I hadn't heard that.
0: Yeah, where we find intimacy by finding a common enemy, which to me is like, you know, the cheap way to get intimacy, you know, it's like and gossip, I, basically. It's gossip, right? I mean, this happens a lot with couples. Like if, It's great with couples when I become their enemy, because then that makes them stay really close together when I'm seeing them. They're like, cool, we're just going to make Tracy the jerk. Then we're not going to (laughs) be rude to each other because we're going to feel we have common enemy intimacy. And so I think that this need to matter has us almost seeking out this kind of bizarre. Heightened, high con, just treacherously high conflict. Because it gives us a sense of, I was just watching some battle show with my husband last night. And it gives us this sense of going into battle together and you love mm-hmm. each other and you've got blood all over your clothes and, <laughs> you know, we're just going to be loyal to the death. You know, it sort of feels like that sometimes.
1: Yeah, right. No. And it's like, how do you keep that in balance, right? Because there is a, a really positive, healthy um, source from which that comes, right? To want to belong, to want to matter. Um, I have a funny, can I tell you a very quick, funny, common enemy intimacy story now that I know that phrase? Okay. (laughs) So uh, one of the more fun parts of this book, High Conflict, was talking to people who study conflict in outer space. Because it won't surprise you, Tracy, because you know humanity to know that there is always conflict, and even among astronauts. Like when you put humans together. Oh, okay,
0: I thought we were thinking of like with aliens. I'm like, whoa, we have like, got oh my god, problems here. Okay. Where is oh, this, this makes sense. conversation yes. going?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I should have clarified among humans. Um, so, so particularly now because NASA wants to do these deep space missions to Mars, which are of such a duration, and you're so out of communication that you just cannot have high conflict on a space flight, right? So, um, so I talked to people who are doing these simulations of space flights, of deep space missions, where they literally put like six strangers, aspiring astronauts, into a windowless concrete building for like 17 months, and they, are, they don't get to have real-time contact with anyone. I mean, they literally, it's like they're going to Mars. They do all the same things, and then they study how much conflict they have, um, <laughs> among other things. So, on the longest simulation of a deep space mission to date, which was 17 months, there were 49 conflicts that they bothered to report. Um, There are many more, right, that they didn't report. (laughs) Um, But one of the most common guaranteed kinds of conflict on every mission is between the crew up in space and ground control down on Earth. Right. And I was talking to one of, uh, to an aspiring astronaut who's in the book who said that in his experience on one of these simulations, he noticed how when ground control would send some request that was just super annoying, um, he could bond with his other fellow crewmates by pointing out, look at, can you believe what this guy said? And it felt so good. Right. And that's what we're talking about. And it was important though, also because. He needs those people and he needs to get along with them. Right. Now, you can build that kind of intimacy other ways. This is a cheap way to build it, right, at the expense of someone else. And it's ultimately can be quite destructive, right, because um, ground control needs the crew to be in communication with it. Um, So, so, there are other ways they've come up with to try to build that intimacy. And we can talk about that if you want. But I just thought it was a fun example of how, even, I mean, because astronauts, you know, are not normal. Like they're not, it's 75 times harder to be selected as an astronaut for NASA than to get into Harvard. Like the, it's an extreme, unusual person. Wow. So, and they get all this conflict management training and they're just unusually psychologically and physically resilient under stress. And so they're just, they're not like, for me, it would be, <laughs> It would be a disaster in outer space, but even they, the point is even they cannot resist the magnetism uh, of us versus them conflict with ground control.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's something you take up, up in your book a lot is the, the us versus them. And uh, Niobe Way, who's been on the podcast, she's a researcher on dehumanization and she has, she's at NYU, highly recommend you. And she could connect up, um, talks about how dehumanization is just such a big part of especially American systemic organization and interactions. So I'm curious to ask you, what did you go into writing the book, assuming, and where did you have your mind changed along Hmm. these lines of us versus them and dehumanization?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the one of my like tricks with all my books is to follow people who have been to the other side like people who in this case were stuck in high conflict and got to good conflict and then try really hard and i don't always succeed to let them lead to some degree you know let their story be the story that i tell and it's hard to let go because you do go in <laughs> with preconceived notions about you know what you want to have happened and how to explain and um, so just you know there are so many examples, but to take one, one of the people I follow is uh, a man named Curtis Toller, who grew up on the south side of Chicago and joined his first gang when he was about nine years old and ended up rising through the ranks of his organization and through a series of events got sort of locked in a vendetta with a rival gang, which later 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 he would Learn, realize was based on uh, mythology, something that just wasn't true, like many vendettas. Um, But anyway, so he eventually shifted out of that high conflict. He now helps young men and women who are at risk of getting shot or shooting someone else in Chicago. But one of the things he taught me is that you have to really distance the conflict entrepreneurs in your life, right, to get out of high conflict. And that made so much sense. And I really kind of loved this idea. Of oh, we just have to like shut down the conflict entrepreneurs, right? Um, and we have to move them off our feeds and move them out of our lives. And I do think there's a lot to that, especially when you're trying to make that shift or not get caught in high conflict. But the thing about Curtis is he just never gives up on anyone because he's been there. he's been a conflict entrepreneur, right for years, a violent conflict entrepreneur. And so he doesn't let me get off the hook with that. <laughs> you know He'll say, like, "You know, you have to try to understand the conflict entrepreneur. Like what are the layers of motivation? And how can I, if they're 90 percent conflict entrepreneur, how can I speak to that 10 percent? That's something that Gary Friedman, the conflict expert I followed, also says. So, you know, I often will, in my it's embarrassing to admit, but in my quest against the us versus them adversarial system and culture we're in, I can easily fall into the trap of creating a new them, right? (laughs) which is the conflict entrepreneurs. And um, I still think we need to name them and talk about it and label it, but I also have to own up to the fact that I have been a conflict entrepreneur and I can be easily. It comes quite naturally to me. Like I'm, you know, I'm I can easily go on a rant about something I think is wrong or unjust or um and sometimes that's okay, right? Like that's motivating, that's but you what you don't want to do is start lumping together huge swaths of humanity and sort of collapsing uh them into cartoons <laughs> that you don't really know. So for for Curtis, just to end this um digression, for Curtis, and he talks about why, you know, what was motivating him as a conflict entrepreneur. In his gang. And he said the, the first thing was a historical conflict. Like his organization was at war with his other one. And there was a sense of purpose and meaning and justice where there was none in Chicago, right? There was no justice. And there still isn't. You know, most black people who get killed in Chicago, no one gets arrested. Um, ever. So this was a way to claw back some justice and purpose and meaning. But then what else? Underneath that, this is the amazing thing about Curtis, is he can keep going. Underneath that, there was a profit motive, conscious or subconscious. You know, He wanted that organization off of his territory because he was selling narcotics in that territory. right? And it was just a lot easier for him to literally exploit the conflict for profit. right? Uh, but then this is my favorite, most complicated reveal is he says, you know, also, it was his internal conflict in him. and he he learned that until you deal with your internal conflict, you'll keep having external conflicts. you know? And so he, for him, had witnessed and been exposed to a huge amount of violence. His mom had was the victim of domestic abuse for many, many years and ultimately murdered. And until he was able, willing, um, and in a place where he could start to deal with that, you know, with a counselor. He couldn't deal with the external conflict, right? And and that's what he tries to help young men do today is reckon with that paradox. Like you'll never get out of external conflict until you
0: work on the internal conflicts. Dang. I mean, Curtis just made a, a bid for therapy for the entire planet. Because isn't Correct. that what I mean? I think good therapy hopefully isn't just about symptom reduction, but wrestling with those paradoxes. And what I hear you saying is. The way that I confront not creating another us versus them dynamic by lumping all conflict entrepreneurs into this narrative of the bad guy is to also wrestle with my own paradox, which is I have a conflict entrepreneur inside of me. I mean, I do too. I've had to wrestle with this with sidewalk talk. Every time sidewalk talk gets attention, I go, Ooh, that part of me that wants to feel like I matter just got a little pat on the head and now I want more, right? And then I have to really slow my roll and go, Hey, you're going to sign up for some stuff that's going to be out of alignment with your values. And then I have to go back to an inner wrestling again. But Mm. so Curtis signs up though, to do this inner wrestling, you sign up to do this inner wrestling. I sign up to do this inner wrestling. Most people don't want to, I feel like that's why we're in this situation. We'd rather just continue othering. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I guess I think a lot of people would rather continue othering. I'm not sure it's most people. That's where I'm not sure. I mean, I think most people, like, really, if we're looking at the whole population of the globe, (laughs) uh, the evidence suggests from polling and other things that most people are exhausted by the kind of conflict, by the vitriol that we are seeing in many countries, right? Um, Certainly, I could speak. To the U.S., where we know from really cool research that an organization called More in Common has done, that it's really about thirty percent of the country that's really, you know, in the high conflict that's like engaged on the right and left, fifteen um, percent each roughly, who are just you know consuming a lot of political news, who are really in high conflict, um, and they also have, by the way, the most distorted view of each other. Right. So the kind of the more in the conflict you are, the more mistakes you make about each other. But anyway, meanwhile, there's this exhausted majority, as more in common refers to them, who really want major social change and they want less toxicity in the conflict. So both, you know, both at once. They don't necessarily want moderation or centrism, but they want less toxicity less dehumanization and there's a real i think craving hunger for that mm-hmm. and it's led to a lot of people to just tune out of politics and stop reading the news yeah. because they're not getting it you know
0: yeah yeah so as i'm listening to you i'm going to tell you what just arose in me i had a bunch of different bullet points that came up i'm like whoa lots of skill building we need to do lots of skill building but I also felt a little daunted by how much skill building we would need to do. I it, my mind kind of went to I lead a I lead a couples group where mm-hmm. couples come together, and we actually did. We have this class that we teach at Sidewalk Talk called "Wish You Knew Me," and it's designed specifically for intimates who have conflict mm-hmm. around politics or vaccines. And oh, we give interesting. Them a, we give them a conversation guide, so not like a stranger, you know. But the I didn't know that you matter. did that. That's cool. We just uh, did it last November. And I think what was most amazing in that relative to the couple, we had so many married couples show up where one person voted for Trump and one person voted for Biden. And oh, that that's, that's a fascinating huge, yeah,
1: that's, and nobody's, I mean, there's people are just, there's so much pain around this. So that's awesome that there's somewhere. Yeah. We're going to push,
0: go. we're going to, try to push more of this. Cause I just got, I, I kind of forgot about it for a while, but I just got a message from one of our listeners and they said, gosh, I just used the wish you knew me conversation guy with my mom and it made everything so much better. I'm like, really, this is great. <laughs> all right. I'm writing
1: this down because people come to me all the time, you know, and I'm like, uh, there's, there's a lot, a lot of advice out there about how to talk to people across divides, but most of it feels really thin, you know? And I feel like this now, makes more sense.
0: This is actionable. We give, we, we actually created a little, well, we were talking earlier about my little paper card. We actually created a paper invitation that you're supposed to mail to the person. You say, Hey, I want to have a conversation with you. And wow. it's really sweet. And they said, and here's a conversation guide, and you need to prepare for the conversation. And then we literally walk them through telling a couple childhood stories that sort of tease out their values. Wow, that's really cool. So that they're not getting into the deep end of the pool right out the gate. Right, right, right. No, there's a way to, there's an art to this. And just none of us,
1: almost no one knows it, but there is an art to this, you know, and you have to learn it. You can't just plunge in. But I'm curious, I know this is a crass question, but did you record any of it or is it all like private?
0: No, no, I'll send you the the recording of the live session. I don't oh have God. any of their, I don't have any of their faces, but it was about no, no, 75 folks. It was one session that turned up and wow. now we're going to record it into little mini lessons. Cause it went so well, I didn't mean to do a plug for wish you knew me when I was no, talking, but this to you. is right on target, <laughs> right? I mean, there are, there are something like
1: 40 million Americans who stopped speaking to someone in their lives over the 2016 election. So, you know, it's more now, right? That's a lot of pain. Yeah. That's a lot of pain. And it's like, it's particularly heartbreaking, and I, I'm wondering if this resonates with you. Because once you, once you have the privilege to witness a lot of these conversations when they do go well, which is hard, right? You realize ah, what a loss it is that it's not happening more. Mm-hmm. You know, because there are real profound disagreements. Like I'm not saying we should all agree or get along, but like some percentage of that 40 million doesn't have to be in so much pain.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know what percentage, but like some percentage and that's
0: ah, yeah. that's just a travesty really. Yeah. No, we did another thing that I'll share with you. Cause I know it, it'll excite you. Um, where we, right after George Floyd's murder, we got black and white folks together and just started listening to each other. And it was hard because there were folks that attended the first meeting that were in high conflict zone. It was just about the self-righteous, and I don't, I'm not interested in tone policing, but I also think you can create a container and say, Hey, this is what this container is for. And if you need a different kind of container, we're going to have to find another container, not to say that your anger or your righteous indignation is wrong. This is just what this particular container is for. And um, the group decided to carry on. So two members of the team still lead it to this day. And one of the members and I just did a presentation three weeks ago where she shared a story of of, of her own about a racist experience she had. She's black. And I shared a story about my own white saviorism and how it bit me in the ass. And we just were able to hold space and not sort of make it about tropes about black people and white people, but really hear each other's humanity beneath that all. Wow.
1: That's cool. You've been, you've been doing cool stuff since I last.
0: <laughs> well, that one we didn't programmatize. We just, you know, I learned something from this group, this idea, you know, capitalism will have us productize things and then it doesn't really listen to the community. Right. Because someone at the top is trying to create a product to sell. Right. But what if it's not the product the community wants? So when mm. we started listening, You know, the first thing one of the older black women that joined the circle said to me is, oh, great, another white person defining the space. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're totally right about that. So let's shift gears and co-create on the fly right now. And that's how we've done it every time. And I think that there's something to be said. And I think this goes back to a question that you talked about before this before we went live about how can countries listen to their people better? Um, but I don't want to veer off too much because we're still talking about conflict, but we can rope around. And I feel like I'm talking too much, and not doing enough listening. So no, no, a this is great.
1: <laughs> and I actually have a question for you though. Is that allowed? Can I it's ask It's lo- It's allowed. Um, like when you're doing those conversations about race, for example, how do you find works best to try to deal with the power imbalances around that? Like, like, okay. So there's some research that shows that the le- less powerful group in a in a high conflict, um, and this research was between Palestinians and Israelis. But um, they found that it was really helpful in ways you could measure for the Palestinian group to feel heard by the Israelis, but the, not so much for the Palestinians. <laughs> for the Israelis to feel heard by the Palestinians. Now, I I, I don't love that because it creates this sort of dichotomy. And I think probably everybody needs to feel heard, right? But there is a power imbalance as there are as there is in, in our racial conflict. So how do you kind of, I'm just curious, I don't have the answers, but like, how do you deal with that in the room?
0: Yeah. I think that the folks that have more positional power have to be super flexible at being called out on their, their positional power in a really hum- humble way. Like when the older black woman said to me straight up, Uh hey, you know what? You're defining the space. But at the same time, I've also consulted with Oregon. I don't consult, but given feedback to some folks where a a white person was called out for their positional power, but it devolved into high conflict. I don't think that's helpful either. I think that there has to be a set of agreed upon ground rules for how all conflict is going to be resolved. Mm-hmm. And when I call you out on your positional power, because there's other stuff going on besides race, there's somebody's personal yeah. psychology to bear too. totally right. And I'm other identities, you know, I like have I all could, these other identities, yeah. right? Like there's
1: many other, <laughs>
0: there's gender, there's class, there's like lots of things are happening. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm still learning. So I, I try to get really smart people like you on the podcast and pick their brains. <laughs>
1: about this oh, that's what, Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, <laughs> like we're
0: I've been up to the to same Glenn, game. Glenn Singleton of Conscious Conversations on for a long, long time. So folks uh-huh. like that, I think have really got the corner on the market and yeah. do this well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a craft. I mean, it is really, I remember a minister that I interviewed for a story for the Atlantic once up in upstate New York. He said to me, I always think of this, he said, you know, speaking about politics, let's say just writ large political speech is, is an art. Like it is, it is not something you just do without any training or trial and error. And he said for his first five years as a minister, he didn't dare talk about anything controversial behind the pulpit. But you you can't stay in that space, right? That's you have to go into the conflict, into the hard stuff, challenge your congregants, right? But the one challenge we have now is that everyone has a pulpit. <laughs> right. And yet, not the no, no sort of upskilling in how to manage that. how what actually persuades people. It isn't your intuition will not help you here. Right. Your intuition does not lead you in a good place on Facebook or YouTube or or Twitter. Your intuition, and there's cool research on this like when people post something on Facebook that they they think is a fact, a political fact that will is helpful. To their to the public, they think they're doing a service. It's actually perceived by their followers as an opinion, and maybe not so helpful, you know. So there's this always, even in person, as you know, right from your couples that you work with. There's always an illusion of com- of communication, like a belief that we have communicated <laughs> when we have not, and and of course, online it's like, you know, on steroids. So. It's sort of like we are with these platforms, where we were with cigarettes in the nineteen fifties, right? There's just sort of a, you know, madcap, you know, revelry, but without any awareness of the harm and ways to like put guardrails on it and prevent uh, the most vulnerable from getting just destroyed.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful. So, are you are you not a fan of social media then?
1: Well, I use it, so I'm a hypocrite, I guess, but I try to use it differently now that I've learned from people like you. I mean, I do like active listening on Twitter when someone comes after me. If, if they seem, comes after me is too strong, but if they are, are pushing back on something I've said, if they seem like it's in good faith, it's not just a, you know, uh, just bait. I will try to like hear them. You know, ideally I'll take it off Twitter, or put it, at least put it, make it a DM but ideally over the phone if i know the person but like you know really try to get curious and 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 that does i know you know this it does change everything like it is like a magic wand even on
0: social media which is kind of cool yeah totally I, and i've just had this happen so many times too i also though i don't know if you experience this but i do have to make sure i'm in the right frame of mind because I have to be, you have to be super intentional to listen that way on social media for whatever reason. It's just so easy yeah. to forget the humanity of the person through the screen and the, the tapping with your thumbs, you know? totally. Yeah. It's like too quick.
1: It's too, it's like an automatic weapon, you know, like there's, do you need time to reload? Like that is, <laughs> that is not right. That is not how the human brain should be.
0: Managed. I do have to give this shout out because. Just because I, I like you and I just I want to be excited about the same stuff. But the person that I go follow their social media feed whenever I'm feeling down about our capacity or my own capacity to listen is Rain Dove, the t- trans activist. They're a model. And I have never seen a human on, in my life having the capacity to listen the way Rain Dove listens. Wow. And it will make you cry. That's a high time. compliment from you. AA okay. Will Respond to an aggressive parent complaining about how they supported their trans kid and getting like a, a chest compressions, and I've never seen someone with the capacity to empathize. Hmm. Wow, I, I, they're they're my biggest hero right now. Frankly, to be honest, so <laughs> wow,
1: that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, so yeah so go because go it shows it is possible to do this. Oh. And you could design things to make it easier, right? To make it the norms, right? Like the norm, as opposed to like an extreme rarity. Is this, yeah. are we talking Instagram? What are we talking about? Instagram. Okay.
0: And Facebook. They'll oftentimes screenshot text exchanges that, that they have with other parents. Ah, so go check them out.
1: That's cool. Who are your heroes? Mm, well, the people I followed in the book are right on my mind right now. I have their pictures all around me to help me remind myself while I'm doing all this you know, book publicity of what the purpose is. Like just like you were saying, it's easy to be like, "Ooh, you know, the book got picked up by CBS, and you get this kind of ego involvement in it." And and the reason is not about me. Like the reason is these people that I've had the privilege to follow um, and learn from. I mean, one of them, you know, Caleb Follett is a conservative Trump supporter from Michigan who works in his local prison who I write about towards the end of the book, um, who went on this exchange program, essentially, with liberal Jewish New Yorkers, um, invited them into his home. They stayed with him for three days. He moved his whole family around so they would have a place to sleep. And they went on all these you know, <laughs> field trips. I was there. Luckily, I got to go with them. And they went to a firing range, and they went to a prison museum, and they had a lot of hard conversations about race and immigration and policing. um. And it was, it was like unlike anything I've seen up close. I mean, there both sides, the conservatives and the progressives in this group, had a lot of fear going into it. Like, are we crazy for doing this? Like Caleb's friends were like, You're crazy to have a bunch of like strange New Yorkers come into your home. Like, haven't you heard about Antifa? You know, that was the and and the New Yorkers were like, couldn't sleep the night before they flew there. And there was a lot of fear. Um, and Caleb, you know, when I was writing the book, Caleb and I disagree on many, many things. And I truly enjoy his company. And he teaches me things. It is really hard, given how segregated we are politically as a country in the United States. It is it is really hard to... Um, to stay curious and get surprised and realize how little you understand. So having this friendship with Caleb has been, and his openness, right? Like he, he works like double shifts at this prison. He has no time. And he has like three little kids. It's crazy. And he read the whole book when I asked him to and gave me like, we spent four hours on the phone where he would laugh and point out the things I was saying that were like incredibly off-putting to conservatives. Some of them, which I did not know, I did not mean. To to be alienating, right? Some of them I did meet, right? But like, it's good to know, you know. Like, there's certain things that I didn't need to phrase in that way, not realizing it was a trigger word for half the country, right? (laughs) So, uh, so I guess that's a long answer to your question. But but he is a hero of mine for being willing to keep. We we really do listen to each other, you know. And he sends me YouTube videos of things I'd never. And and I learn from them, you know. So it's he watches way more YouTube than I do. So it's it's nice to have
0: to have someone He's your YouTube curator of conservative exactly um, exactly of conservative things to watch. I'm
1: I'm glad to have him between me and you know all the content on YouTube.
0: That's sweet. There's something very um, you're talking. I hear friendship. I hear like a potential for a you said camaraderie, even friendship and. Yeah, You know, in my community in San Francisco, uh, I'm in Germany now, I've told you, but um, I would be accused of being disloyal if I were friends with someone like Caleb. And right. how dare I? Um, right. I shouldn't even listen to somebody on the street that's like Caleb. And I've had people leave our organization because I was willing to listen to people. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um Mm. it's, it's,
1: it's, it's like so painful, isn't it? Like I, I, I get that a lot too. And here in DC where I live, it's very politically homogeneous, uh, at least on national politics. And uh, I remember a few years ago, like early on in the Trump administration, talking to some friends of mine who I adore and respect and all these things. And I said, um, you know, we just, there needs to be so we're not marrying, dating, or living next to, or working with people of other political persuasions. It's a big problem. Anytime you do that, you get prejudice, you get stereotyping, um, and she she just said, "I don't, I don't really want to talk to them. They're racist." <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay." Like I don't even know how to r- respond to that. And it was such it just shuts down the conversation. Um, you know, I don't know why why that's the end of the conversation. You know, I'm I I many people are racist. I'm sure I have been racist. And does that mean that we can't do better? Like I I'm sure shunning these people will not help the racism. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like whatever, you know, there was a great piece out, I think it was in can't remember if it was Slate, but it it was like years ago where it was like um calling someone a racist does not make them less racist. And that was the headline. And it was like all this research actually behind that, uh, and should be obvious, but somehow has been lost. But yeah, there's a a real lack of of, you know, yes, you shouldn't let people get away with saying racist things. And what do you say in response? Like where is the skill, the craft, the learning, the education, the nuance, the sophistication, emotional, intellectual, around what you say, how you respond to that? If you want to help, right? If you want to just feel amazing, like you're righteous and pure, then you can do that, right? You don't need any help. <laughs> but like, if you actually want to fix this problem, let's talk about that. Woo,
0: woo. I like that. You're saying, look, to, you can be righteous and call people out and you don't need any training for that. We already seem to have the corner on the market of the righteous call out, whether it's about racism or it's about politics or it's about vaccinations or about mask wearing. It doesn't matter what it's about. What I hear you saying is we could make really lasting change that really solves racism in America or dehumanization of any kind by developing the capacity to dialogue differently. That's what I'm hearing you saying, and that that might be truer to anti-racist work than the righteous call out, because then you're really getting in there and rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands super dirty. Right. And and also you get surprised. I mean, I
1: have yet to have one of these conversations and not be surprised, also get frustrated, also get angry, also feel scared and be surprised. There's more going on in people than than we think right? Like people are not one thing, just like I am not one thing and you are not one thing. So there's just a total absence of humility around it sometimes that I find, I mean, it is, it is an orthodoxy. It's becoming like a religion, you know, and, and that's,
0: that's scary. Um, and I come yeah. from fundamentalist backgrounds. So anytime somebody starts to tell me that this is how to be righteous and pure, my whole system goes,
1: ugh.
0: Right. Oh you know where God. that leads, right? Yeah. It terrifies me. Well, this has been a great conversation. I could talk with you for hours and hours. Same. Um, i'm I'm wishing you so much success with this book, and we'll do whatever we can to shout it out and and get it in the folk, in the hands of more folks. It, you know, we're having this conversation during Mental health Awareness Month, and I do think that the ways in which we didn't even scratch the surface of how much you talk about in this book and educating people about what happens in their brain, during high conflict, which is so linked to mental health, right? This mm-hmm. impacts our mental health. Totally. So your book is is really a, a really great tool to also think about how all of these political conversations are impacting our mental health. So I'm going to just put a plug in, go buy it. <laughs> and we're going to do a book club around it. And um, cool. we have a tradition here for how we close our, we have a ritual for how we end our conversation together, which is um, I hand over the mic fully to you and invite you to speak directly to those folks around the world that have been listening on the sidewalks for six years, either a wish or words of wisdom. Someone three weeks ago sang a song, so you can really take it wherever you want, but speaking directly to those listeners, what might you wanna say to them?
1: Hmm. Oh, I love that. So um, I have listened to your podcast, but I guess I haven't listened to the end because that's such a cool tradition. Um, So uh, what I would love to do is I feel like people who have worked, who have listened on sidewalks, understand something that most of us do not. This is just a suspicion. And they understand that when you really listen to someone, even if you disagree, there is something that opens up there's an opening that happens in your in your mind and in your heart. And most people who experience that kind of opening across a big difference want more of it. It's almost like a drug, like a very good drug. And uh, so what I'd like to close with is um, a quote from someone I, I followed in the book. I told you about Caleb, the conservative um, that I followed. Well, there were also the Jewish liberals from New York City that I followed, and the woman who stayed with Caleb um, in his home um, in Michigan and also opened up her home, her apartment in Washington Heights to Caleb when they came to New York City, is named Martha Acklesburg, very you know, politically engaged, progressive, who helped start the Women's Studies Department at Smith, and she said about this time, talking across these huge differences, she said, I wish I could appear everywhere in my life, the way I felt called to appear there, present, open, able to be
0: surprised. Boy, that one takes my breath away. Amanda Ripley, we're going to put all kinds of comments in the in the thread on YouTube and Facebook so people can find you and find your book. Um. I just want to say you've achieved your mission, which is to really center the stories of the people you followed. And I appreciate the way in which you're centering their stories. And I'm really grateful to you for writing this book. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you for listening. Yeah. All right. Be well. You too. Thank you for being here listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from, and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.